like said, and we're in the middle of a series called What Happened to the Gospel? And, and one of my prayers, one of the fruits that I'm trusting that has come out of this series is that it's changed the way that you read the Bible. I think for too long the church has relied on uh, the Bible says without doing the hard work of finding out what the Bible means. And uh, we, we've hid behind the Bible says, and therefore the Bible says. Now, what does the Bible mean when it says? And uh, I trust that the fruit of this series is uh, that you've had a, a fresh lenses, firstly, to read the Bible, and that a fresh hunger has been birthed in you to uh, spend time meditating on Scripture, not only reading it, but meditating on it and putting it into practice, and then doing the hard work of finding out what it actually means, as opposed to the easy work of what it says. Anyone can find out what it says. And I trust that that's one of the fruits that have come out of the story. And uh, as I spend time studying the Bible, the more time I spend studying the Bible, I'm realizing that the Bible is full of gray areas. The Bible's got black and white in it, but it's got a lot of gray too. Uh, we are black and white people. We love things to be black or white, right or wrong, black or white. The Bible is full of gray. Uh, there's a lot of black and white, but there's a lot of gray too. Jesus was full of gray. Jesus said a lot of black and white things, but there was a lot of nuance to Jesus. He was gray. And a lot of things that he said. I read that Jesus was asked over 300 questions by people in the Bible. And he only have answered three of them directly. People wanted him to constantly be put in the corner. Jesus, take a side. Black or white? Right or wrong? Take a side. Jesus, whose sin caused this man to be born crippled? Was it his or his parents? Right or wrong? Jesus said, neither. He was born crippled so that the glory of God could be displayed. Jesus, the law of Moses says we should stone this woman put in adult, caught in adultery. What do you say? Jesus, right or wrong? Jesus says nothing. He looks down in the sand and he writes. And then he looks up and he says, it's fair enough. But let the person who was without sin among you cast the first stone. Nuance. Gray areas. The Bible is full of gray areas. This morning I'm talking on hell. Hell is not a gray area. The Bible is full of gray areas. But hell is not one of them. The Bible is very clear about hell. The other day I was driving on the M4 and my car engine started making this noise. I drive a bit of an older car and so it concerned me a little bit. Uh, and so I pulled over to the side of the road, uh, well, pulled off, pulled off the freeway by Lolusia Moore. And I got out the car, opened the bonnets to have a look. And I had a quick look around and I know nothing about cars. Nothing. So I opened the bonnet, had a look. Um, windscreen wipers over there. Uh, the, the oil oil goes over there. That's the hot part. That's the turning part. Everything looks good. In my unprofessional estimation, uh, 30 seconds glance around, there's no problem. Everything is fine. So what I did, closed the bonnet and drove off holding thumbs, hoping for the best. See, I've learned to live with the noise. It doesn't bother me as much anymore. I'm basically just driving around hoping for the best. What I don't want to do is take my car to a mechanic. Because if I take my car to a mechanic, he's very likely going to say to me, it's a very expensive problem to fix. I think that's how many of us approach our theology on hell. We open up the Bible, we have a quick look around, and then we close it. Because we don't want to know, we don't want our worst fears to be confirmed. We don't want to look around with a mechanic for him to tell us, actually, your cam belt is about to snap. I'm here to tell you this morning that your worst fears about hell are true. But they don't have to be true for you. They are true, but they don't have to be true for you. We're going to have a quick look at uh, some of the things that hell is not. 
And then some of the things a little bit more in depth at what hell is and what are the implications for us. And so I'm going to go a little bit quicker than I would normally go, a little bit quicker than I would normally speak this morning, and uh, also a little bit more teachy as opposed to preachy, which is my natural style. And so I'm going to, there's, there's going to be some points and some scriptures coming up on screen. So if I do go a little bit fast, I'm trusting that you'll be able to still follow with those things. I believe that there's stuff that we need to get through this morning because I want to help us to have a proper look under the hood and uh, to diagnose what the issue with the car is. Okay, a couple of things that, uh, that hell is not. Firstly, hell is not com- comparable to anything on this earth. Hell is not comparable or comparable to anything on this earth. During the Second World War, one of the Allied generals coined the phrase, war is hell. A couple of years later, a person in the third world country read this and said, hold on, war is not hell. Where I live is hell. So life is hell. Friends, both of those guys are wrong. Hell is, like, hell is comparable to nothing on this earth. And here's why. Everything on this earth has life. In hell, there's no life. You are constantly awake, but dying, and yet not able to die. You live in a constant state of not being alive, not being dead, but constantly dying. It's not comparable to anything on this earth, because everything on this earth, no matter how bad it is on this earth, there is still life in it. Hell hell has no life in it. Number two, hell is not created for humans. Jesus said, Matthew chapter uh, 25, verse 41, "'Depart from me, you cursed.'" into the eternal fire that is prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell is a place that, created, that was created by God to deal with unrighteousness, which we'll, and we will deal with that word in a few minutes. Hell, hell is a place to deal with, like, that God created to deal with unrighteousness. And it was never God's intent that humans would be unrighteous. It was never God's plan for humans to be unrighteous. And so therefore, he didn't create it for humans. It was created for the unrighteous, which was Satan and his demons or his angels. But people still end up there. And again, we'll get to that in a minute. Hell is not created for humans. Number three, hell is not a place where Satan is king. This might wreck your theology a little bit. This might challenge your understanding of hell. But hell is not a place where Satan is king. Although it's a place that has only evil in it and no goodness, it's still not a place where Satan is king. God is the king of hell. Just as he is the king of everything else that he's created in time and in space. Satan is held in hell by the divine government of heaven. If Satan was a king of hell, he could simply leave. Satan is not the king of hell. God is. And fourthly, hell is not figurative. The Bible, again, is it's full of gray areas, but it's full of allegory. It's full of parables. It's full of hyperbole and metaphors. But hell is not one of those. Hell is a, rea- a reality. Hell is not figurative. Today I want to convince you that hell is a reality. You see, we have no right to believe in an eternal heaven if we don't believe in an eternal hell. Do you know who spoke the most about hell in the Bible? It was Jesus. Jesus was the person who spoke the most about hell in the Bible. It it is Jesus who has shaped our theology and our understanding of heaven and an eternity with God. And it's his words that we cling to, that we will have an eternal life with him. And yet it's his words that we pay less attention to, close the hood and drive off, hoping all things are well, when he speaks on hell. We have no right to believe in an eternal heaven if we don't believe in an eternal hell. 
Those are four quick points. Again, I've shot through them, and I haven't gone uh, very much in-depth into them because there's a, lot, there's a lot more that I want to get through. Those are quick four points about hell. If you're taking notes, those are the, you can write those four things down. They're helpful. You can unpack them on your own. And uh, otherwise, I can, I'm going to give you four books at the end that I trust uh, would be helpful for you to read. Going through this, I've realized that some of the beliefs that I've held about hell in the past were uh, passively held beliefs. Uh, I hadn't actively engaged what I believed on hell. They, uh, they were passively held beliefs. And I, when I held them up to the test, I realized that they were, I couldn't actually preach them because they were a little bit weak in, in their understanding. And I trust that this morning, uh, some of the stuff we go through is going to help you understand hell a little bit better because it's important for us to understand uh, what's happening. So that's what hell is not. What is hell? Number one, hell is a place. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 says this. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jumping ahead to verse 46. And these will go down away to eternal punishment. But the righteous to eternal life. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So, Exactly like heaven is a place, hell is a place. Jesus refers to these two opposite places here as where the righteous will go to eternal life. That's our understanding of heaven, which we'll be speaking about next week. And yet the, etern- and yet the unrighteous go to an eternal punishment, which is our understanding of hell. Again, if, you have, if your theology makes way for an eternal place in heaven with God, then you have to make way. The same person, this is the same scripture that Jesus is talking about. An, eternal, an eternity in heaven with God, an eternity in hell apart from God. As heaven is a place, so hell is a place. There's three Greek words and one Hebrew word that our English Bible is translated as hell. Two of the Greek words, Hades and Tartarus, as well as the Hebrew word Sheol, uh, the, all, that are all translated hell, they mean the grave or death. And they refer to a temporal place uh, where all the unrighteous that have died are held until the day of final judgment. Until, until the, at the end of the ages, when this world ends, all the unrighteous are held in, in a, a temporary holding place called Hades or Sheol or Tartarus. And uh, it's a place of uh, unspeakable torment and torture, with the only relief being that it's not eternal. But the people that are there at the end of their time there, will face a judgment at the end of the ages and then will be thrown into an eternity in hell. The other, the other Greek word that is translated as hell is the Greek word Gehenna. And as the words that Jesus uses, when he, when he talks about hell, the word Jesus uses is Gehenna. Uh, and it's, it refers to a place of eternity. Gehenna is a place that uh, is, is a literal place and it's, it's situated southwest of the city of Jerusalem. It's outside the city gates, southwest of it. And it used to be called the Valley of Hinnom. And it was here that the Ammonite kings, the Ammonite people used to sacrifice their children to the god Molech. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah prophesies that this valley will become a valley of God's judgment and God's wrath being poured out. Over the centuries, it was a place of desolation and desecration. And what happened was the Israelite nation uh, began to use this valley to throw all of their rubbish, all of their garbage, uh, diseased animals, uh, cr- bodies of criminals that had died, uh, offal, 
and all used to be thrown into this valley and kept burning. They put sulfur in this, in this valley to keep it burning, continually burning, as they threw more garbage, more rubbish, more diseased bodies, more bodies of criminals uh, into this area, and it, and it was kept burning by sulfur so that their, their rubbish problem and their disease problem was dealt with in the fire of sulfur. This is the word, and it was given the Greek word Gehenna. This is the word Jesus uses to describe hell. This is what hell will be like. So hell is a place, and it's a place created by God for Satan and his demons, and yet somehow unrighteous people end up there. The word righteous simply means this, right standing with God. We talk righteous and unrighteous. The word righteous means right standing with God. Uh, to be right standing means that we, we, don't, we no longer owe a debt. If I owe a debt to somebody, I'm not in right standing. Once that debt is paid, I'm in, I'm in right standing with them. So remember, Paul talks in the book of Romans chapter 6, he says, the wages of sin is death. So sin has caused us to owe a debt that we cannot pay. By virtue of the fact that we are born human, we are born sinful, there's a debt that we cannot pay. There's a debt that has to be paid to God by virtue of the fact that we are born sinful. To be righteous means that Jesus has paid that debt on my behalf, and I'm in right standing with God. There's no longer a debt that is owed on my behalf to God. Jesus has paid that debt. That's what it means to be righteous, to be in right standing with God. So if hell was created for Satan and his demons, how do people end up there? The purpose of hell is to cleanse the world of all unrighteousness and so return the earth to its original created state before sin entered the world and distorted it. it is, hell is, was created by God to right the wrongs of sin. Some people argue that the wrath of God displayed in hell is disproportionate to the destruction that sin has caused. It's a disproportionate reaction. God, you're overreacting. These people have simply misunderstood the gravity of sin. Human beings have done infinite damage to what God has created, not only environmentally, but to the, the very nature and the image of God, human beings. The value that humans place on God's creation is nothing. And so to understand the value of creation, we need to see the value that God places on creation. Take, for example, two cars. If I was to build a car in my garage, obviously, clearly with a lot of help, based on my knowledge of cars, if, if I was to build a car in my garage with my own hands, and then there was a car that came off the assembly line in China, and they equally drove, miraculously. They looked the same, and they drove the same. One was built by me, one came off the assembly line in China. To an to a, to a third-party observer, those two cars are of equal value. In my eyes, the car that I created is infinitely more valuable than the car that came off the, value, came off the, the, the assembly line in China. To understand the value of creation, we cannot value it ourselves. We have to go to the creator to see the value that he places on creation. Genesis chapter 3, God creates the universe. He says, it is very good. It is very good. God's, God's standard for very good is perfection. When God created the universe, he said, it is perfect. It is very good. He then places such a value on creation that he doesn't spare his own son, Jesus, but he sends him to earth to be a sacrifice, to pay the price for everything that has been created, to be redeemed back into a relationship with the holy God. Everything that has been created that doesn't choose to take hold of the sacrifice made by Jesus, needs to have righteousness fulfilled on their behalf in another way. 
Remember that we said uh, in, the, in week one, speaking about uh, the, the power of the gospel, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that, that the, the means of salvation is outside of our grasp. We are, we are unable to save ourselves. You can try your hardest. You can say the best things. You can say the right things. Do Be a good person. But you're never going to be able to be very good. You will never be able to be perfect. You can be as good as you want. You will never be perfect. If God's standard is perfection, you will never reach that standard on your own. There are only two ways for righteousness to be fulfilled. Either through the cross of Jesus or through the fire of Gehenna in hell. Both of them last for an eternity. And both of them satisfy the wrath of God against everything that is unrighteous. I'm going to say that again because the crux of my whole sermon rests on that sentence. There's only two ways for righteousness to be fulfilled. There's only two ways for the debt that you owe to be paid. Either through the cross of Jesus or through the fire in Gehenna in hell. Both of them last for an eternity and both of them satisfy the wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Every person that does not rely on the cross of Jesus to make them righteous, to be in right standing with God, will die with a debt still owing on their behalf, the wages of sin. And they will need to pay that debt for themselves, for eternity in the fires of hell. In a place that was not created for them, but for Satan. So hell is a place, and hell is God's final means to cleanse the earth of all sin. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 13 Verse 49, so will it be in the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter 13, verse 49. Remember, uh, hell is God's final means to cleanse the earth of all sin, but hell is not God's primary means to cleanse the earth of sin. Hell is not God's plan A to rid the earth of sin. Hell is God's final means. God has made a path to salvation and righteousness available to us, but it's our decision whether or not we take advantage of that path, whether we, whether we appropriate that path for ourselves, whether we walk on that path. In the end, at the end of the ages, the earth will be cleansed of all sin. The earth will be put back into a perfect state. However, we end up there is our decision. We either end up there through the cross of Jesus or we end up there through the fires of Gehenna. What will hell be like? How is it described? I think we can have a very uh, relaxed view of hell. Again, I don't want to know that my cam belt is the one making the noise. I'll just close the engine, drive off, and hope for the best. Maybe I'll get used to the noise and it won't bother me so much uh, until, I'm driving, until I'm driving to Mozambique and I have a head gasket go. I think that we, we take a relaxed view on hell because we, we, we live in an age where we, we watch horror films. We are surrounded by horror every day of our lives. Uh, we, we, live, we live in horrific times. And so we take a relaxed view on hell. Friends, I'm here to tell you today, we think we can take the horror of it. I'm here to tell you that you, we cannot take the horror that, that, is, that, that is hell. We cannot, we cannot stand the horror that is in hell. Again, if, uh, please remember, if you don't want to believe what the Bible says about hell, you have no right to believe what the Bible says about heaven either. So let's look at a couple of scriptures. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. It should be up there, Shad. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed and with two hands than to go into hell. 
It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell, where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everybody, everyone will be salted with fire. Those are Jesus' words, friends, not mine. Revelation chapter 14. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. And the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night. Jude chapter 13. Wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Again, friends, these are not something that, this is not something that the church has made up to scare people. These are Jesus' words. If we don't want to believe what Jesus has said about heaven, we have no right to believe what Jesus, about hell. We have no right to believe what Jesus has said about heaven to us. A man by the name of, if you're taking notes, Bill Visa, writes a book, uh, I would call him Visa, he's an American, so I don't know how he would pronounce it, to be honest, um, probably horribly. Um, but, but Bill Visa, he writes a book called, uh, it's okay to laugh talking about hell. It's all right to be laugh, you can still be relaxed. Um, he writes a book called 23 Minutes in Hell. And he, he, has a, he has a vision one night and he's taken to hell. And he writes a book. And if, if reading's not your thing, he also has a few YouTube clips uh, describing his experience, what it was like in hell. Whether it be, we can argue if it's metaphorical or, or uh, he was in a dream or he was, whatever it was, we can argue those things. The fact of the matter is something happened to him. And uh, it's, it, it's helpful for you to go and read that book. Or even if you, if, again, if you're not a reader, go watch the YouTube clips. Uh, Bill Visa, 23 Minutes in Hell. See, the reason that hell is consumed with fire is because God himself is a consuming fire. Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses for the first time, what does he do? How does he get Moses' attention? Well, Moses is walking and he sees a bush that's burning, but it's not consumed. A fire that is burning a bush. and Moses says to himself, this fire is burning, this bush, but yet the bush is not being consumed. The reason that fire is burning constantly, but yet it's not consumed, constantly living in the state between not, not alive and dead, but not able to die, because it's burning, but not consumed. That is the fire of, of, that, is, that is our God. God reveals himself as that in Exodus chapter 3. This is not, that's not the God of Revelation, friends. That's the God that he, the first time he reveals himself to a man outside of Adam and Eve is Moses, and that's how he reveals himself. Jesus tells us a story that I'm going to go through uh, that gives us a little bit more insight into what hell is like. Luke chapter 16, it should be there, Shad. It's a bit of a long scripture, and I'm going to go through it and read it and then pick out a couple points of it. Luke chapter 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At, the gates was laid, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Delicious. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham. Abraham, here is a picture for God. Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony. 
in this fire. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he has comforted her here, and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father He replied, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Again, friends, these are are Jesus' words on hell. This is not something that I've invented, the church has invented over the centuries to scare people. These are Jesus' words on hell. Could you put the the first part of that scripture up, Shad? I want to pick a couple things out of that scripture, a couple points of what Jesus said. Firstly, Jesus, uh, number one, Jesus assumes uh, people's belief in hell. So the people that he's talking to, uh, very often when Jesus is teaching on something that is outside of their understanding, he uses a story or he uses a parable um, or he says the kingdom of heaven is like and he explains it to them because they have no uh, grid of reference for it. When he talks to his disciples and when he talks to the people here, he assumes their knowledge and their understanding of hell. What, in, what he is in effect saying is everything you have been taught in your uh, Jewish tradition, everything that you've been taught about hell, your a contemporary understanding of hell is true. It's correct. He, he makes that assumption right off the bat. Number two, the rich man is conscious. He's conscious. So remember that the state, we've been, I've been trying to describe a state between life and death, but unable to die. He's keenly aware of his suffering, but he's also aware of those who are not suffering with him. The rich man is conscious. He's conscious in hell. Number three, he's in pain. He says to, he says to uh, his father, I'm in torment and I'm in anguish in this flame. Number four, God doesn't answer his prayer. He's praying, Father, relieve me of this anguish. Father, send, please send someone to my brothers. Let them tell. He's praying to God <laughs> very earnestly and God doesn't answer his prayer. Friends, hell is a place where God doesn't answer your prayer. Day and night, God doesn't answer your prayer. If you're on earth here, I want you to understand, if you are waiting for God to answer a prayer, if, you haven't, if you've yet to see the, the fulfillment of a promise or the answer to a prayer that you've been trusting for, friends, I want, to, I want to set you free this morning. The only place that God doesn't answer prayer is hell. Earth is a place where God is able to respond to our prayer. It's not that God doesn't hear your prayer in hell. He hears your prayer in hell. He's unable to respond though. On earth, God hears your prayer and he's, able, he's willing and he's able to respond to it. Hell is a place where God doesn't answer your prayer. Number five, he has memory. He has a memory of his brother, of Lazarus. He knows Lazarus' name, of his brothers on earth. He has a memory. I think this is one of the worst things uh, about hell is that you have a memory. You're constantly reminded, you're constantly filled with regret because of the decisions you made that put you there. I wish I hadn't. I wish I had. I wish I hadn't. I wish I had. I have a memory. Uh, one of the, uh, I'm not sure how true this is, but I've heard that uh, when you go in for an operation and you have anesthetic, what anesthetic does is it actually blocks your memory. And so many times you are aware of the pain of an operation, or many times people wake up in an operation, but uh, what anesthetic does is it blocks your memory. 
And uh, it, so therefore, you think the operation wasn't sore. And if you're going for an operation soon, I'm sure it'll be fine. You don't need to worry about those sort of things. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be fine. I've got faith for you. But one of the worst things about hell is that you have a memory. You remember the pain, and you remember what the pain and the regrets of what could have been. Number six, he's alone. Uh, this guy, Bill Visa, describes going to hell. And although there were millions of other people there, he was unable to interact with any other human. What's the worst section in the prison? Solitary confinement. Why? Because you're removed from anything that makes you feel human. You're removed from the very thing that makes you feel human, contact with another human. I'm human by virtue of the fact that I'm part of a human species, part of the human race, by virtue of the fact that I'm in a community that makes me human. I'm not human by myself. That's why Jesus said, I will never leave nor forsake you, because he understands the torture of being truly alone. If you're here today and you're thinking that you're alone, you might not have family, you might not have friends that, that you are aware of, I want to tell you that you have people that love and care for you, firstly in this church, but secondly, you have a God who is intimately and intricately involved with you and intimately and intricately wants to love you. I will never leave or forsake you because I know the pain and the anguish of being truly alone. I've heard many people say, uh, very relaxed mother, uh, manner, if I go to hell, it's okay, all my friends will be there with me. Friends, uh, that might be true, but you will be alone together. Number seven, it's permanent. He says in verse 26, God replies to him, besides this, in verse 26, uh, between you and us, uh, as a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from you to us. It is a place of permanence. Number eight, the only proof that you're going to get is that the Bible teaches about it. This man thought that if Lazarus could come back from the dead, please go and tell my brothers, if somebody raises from the dead and goes and tells them, hell is the real place, your brother is suffering, they will believe him. And God answers them, they have, you have, they have Moses and they have the prophets. If they don't believe him, they're not going to believe a guy who's raised from the dead. The only proof that we're going to get that hell exists is the same proof that we have that heaven exists. Jesus said so. So hell is a place, hell is God's final means to cleanse the earth of all sin, and hell is for eternity. Hell is for eternity. You know the song Amazing Grace? The, the last verse says this. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Beautiful. Flip that in reverse. When you've been in hell 10,000 years, you've no less days to pay off the debt that you owe than when you first begun. You haven't begun to pay off the interest yet after 10,000 years. Friends, eternity is a long time. A very long time. But it's made to feel longer relative to what you're doing for eternity. Einstein has a theory of relativity, and my boys live out the theory of relativity. We have an Xbox, and they play a two-shooter game, but there's three of them. So I've got, to, uh, I've got to sort that out somehow so that they have 15-minute sessions. Two of them play 15 minutes, and they're on a 15-minute rotation. He has, he has the, theory, the, the practical of the theory of relativity. The person shooting, the person playing... Their 15 minutes feels like one minute. The person waiting to play is convinced. Their 15 minutes waiting is an hour. Convinced. Impossible, Dad. His 15 minutes was way shorter than mine. Way longer than mine. Eternity, time is relevant based on what you are doing in the time. 
And eternity in heaven will be like a twinkling of an eye. It's because it won't feel long enough in eternity. Suffering indefinitely, not only indefinitely, but for an eternity, I can't begin. I think, the, I think the, the reason that many people don't think of hell as an eternal place of conscious punishment is because they don't want to think about it. And so they tell themselves, they comfort themselves that a loving God wouldn't send people to hell for an eternity. We pin, they pin all of their hopes on the love of God, sparing people for an eternity in hell, from an eternity in hell. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are we asking God to do? If you believe that God will not send people who do not know him to hell, what are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he's already done so on Calvary, the cross of Jesus. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone. Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. You see, friends, that it's the love of God that caused him to make a way available to us. So that mankind didn't have to suffer for eternity. Remember John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, when God is giving his laws to his people, he says this, I call, all, I call on all of heaven and earth to be a witness to you today. I lay before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life. I give you a path, a path of life and a path of death. Choose life. Jesus himself, when he came to earth, he said, I am the way. So friends, those are the people that are, that are holding on for God to... Uh, it's the love of God that he would never send people to hell for eternity. God, you've got to make a way for them once they've died. He's made a way for them. All we need to do is choose his way. I think the way that God approaches this and deals with it should, set, should be very freeing to us as pastors, as counselors, as parents. It's our responsibility to make a way available for people that leads to eternal life. And to then to help them walk on that way. If they choose not to. If they choose a path that leads to death, we cannot bear those consequences for them. We cannot go back. God, God, God doesn't change his mind. He's made a way. If you choose this way, it ends up here. If you choose this way, it ends up there. Friends, all of us pretend to be something that we're not at some stage in our lives. We all pretend to be something that we're not. But none of us pretend to be perfect. It's very funny. My kids play pretend all the time. In the, in the playing of pretend... None of them pretend to be perfect because it's too ridiculous. They pretend to be firemen. They pretend to be policemen. They pretend to fly. But they don't pretend to be perfect because it's ridiculous. This is God's standard, perfection. To be perfect is to be righteous, to be in right standing with God. In other words, we owe nothing of the debt of sin no, any longer because it's been paid in full. Either we put all of our trust in Jesus to pay this price on our behalf or we pay the price ourselves. It will take us an eternity to pay off this price in hell. Righteousness is only achieved at one of two places, the cross of Christ or the fires of hell. Hell is a place. Hell is God's final means to cleanse the earth of sin, and hell is eternal. William Wilberforce, you might have heard of him. He was the founder of the Salvation Army 
And uh, he said this in his uh, speech to the first graduating class of the Salvation Army. I'm sorry that I made you sit through two years of training to equip you to lead a lost soul to Christ. It would have been better for you to have spent five minutes in hell. I believe that the church needs to be stirred again by the horror of an eternity in hell in order for us to speak to those who don't know Jesus and warn them of the wrath of God that is to come. We have to be fueled by the fires of hell below us, but captured by the beauty of heaven in front of us. Thank you.